Life and death, that's what we're doing. The series that's called Life and Death. We're looking at the life of Jesus lived in the Gospel of Luke and then the death of Jesus according to the Gospel of Luke and how those two things make Jesus the only true Savior. Look at verse 31. Luke 13, 31. At that very hour. At what very hour? This is a hard part of the lectionary. If we follow the lectionary, we're thrown into the middle of passages. At what very hour? Okay, let's find out. What very hour? Take your scripture, go to Luke 4. What? All the way back there? Yes, Luke 4. Last week we studied in Luke chapter 4 the temptation of Jesus. He was anointed at his baptism by the Holy Spirit. Remember, he was filled with the Holy Spirit even as conception. Fully God, fully man at the beginning. But at his baptism, in a visual way, he's anointed by the Spirit for his priestly, kingly ministry. And he goes to the wilderness and boom, drives back Satan. We studied that last week. If you weren't here, go listen to it online and you can catch up. Not, don't do it now. Listen to it after we're done here. And then he goes right after that. He drives back the power of Satan. It tells us he goes to Nazareth. That's verse 16, Luke 4, 16. Jesus goes to Nazareth. This is his hometown. Okay, Jesus goes to his hometown. And he goes to the synagogue. A synagogue is a gathering of God's people. And they would sit and hang out and discuss God's word and be taught the Holy Scripture, Old Testament. And even some of the traditions of the Pharisees. So he goes to a synagogue and he's handed a scroll. What scroll is he handed? Pop quiz. Mark, Isaiah. Isaiah. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. Chapter 61. Well, he turns to chapter 61 and he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is verse 18. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me, okay, God sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he takes the scroll and he winds it back up. And he hands it to the attendant, the synagogue attendant. And then look at verse 21. He said to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so what he tells, doesn't this make more sense looking at that Isaiah passage after we saw Jesus push Satan back? No, you have no dominion over me. And now he says, I'm the guy that's coming to bring the year of the Lord's favor. If anyone's qualified to fulfill this, it's the guy that just defeated Satan, right? And he says, this has been fulfilled in my coming to you. I am the guy Isaiah promised. And so in Luke, right away, we see Jesus is the promise fulfilled. If you want to be a good student of the Gospel of Luke, you need to know that Luke sees Jesus' promise fulfilled. Over and over, Luke looks in the Old Testament and says, Jesus did that. Jesus did that. Jesus did that. Promise fulfillment. That's how Luke thinks. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. But then look at verse 24. I thought we were studying chapter 13. We are. But look at verse 24. Jesus says, 
Well, here's what happens. He rolls that up and he puts it away and everybody in his hometown's like, I don't know. Could it be? Haven't we seen this kid grow up? Isn't this Joseph's son? I don't know if it's true. They doubt. And then verse 24, he says, truly, Jesus, he says, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What title did Jesus just claim for himself? Prophet. No prophet. I'm a prophet. I'm in my hometown. They're not going to receive this. And then he compares himself to Elijah and Elijah, two of the most prominent Old Testament prophets. He says, I'm like them. Jesus says, I'm the prophet sent by God. A prophet does more than just tell the future, right? Really often, they're not telling the future. What the prophet does, the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament is this. A person is anointed by God. The power of God comes upon them so they can speak for God. They can say God's words. And then they can do God's ministry on earth. That's the office of the prophet. So this is, wrap your minds around this. Luke has said, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. Well, Jesus said that. Then Jesus says, oh yeah, and I am a prophet. What prophet in the Old Testament said, this prophecy I have is about me? None. But Jesus, the final end time eschatological prophet sent by God says, I'm the fulfillment of the prophets and everything I say is really about myself. Do you understand? Jesus is a prophet. Here's why I'm telling you this, because now from here, all the way to where we're at this morning, that very hour, Luke is showing how Jesus is truly the prophet. Jesus goes around teaching about the kingdom of God, speaking God's words. Jesus does wonderful signs and miracles, the works of God on earth. And Jesus, he heals people. He raises the dead. And here's this, listen. He forgives sins. He's quite a prophet sent from God. And we need to hold this in our mind. Prophet, prophecy is fulfilled and a prophet. Go to Luke 9, Luke chapter 9. Jesus is going on his way. He's been doing ministry, living as a prophet, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. If if you're like, hey, I really want to get into the gospel of Luke this Lent, underline this verse, Luke 9.51. Highlight it, circle it, point a bunch of arrows to it. 9.51, it says this, And when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from 9.51 until the cross, Luke is showing us the prophet journeying to Jerusalem. And that's the journey we're on this Lent season with Jesus to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the destination. That's the end. That's the goal. That's where Jesus is going. And this is the shift. From here on, it's all about his journey to Jerusalem. Hold that in your mind as we go back to Luke 13. Go with me. Verse 22. Luke 13, 22. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. 
the prophet is going to Jerusalem. As he goes, like any good prophet, what's he doing? Verse 22, it says, he went through the towns and villages doing what? Teaching. Teaching about the kingdom of God. Teaching that you must repent or you will perish. Luke 13, 1 to 5. Here in Luke 13, he's teaching about the way of salvation. It's a narrow door. He's teaching about the way of salvation. It's that very hour when Jesus is talking about the way of salvation as the prophet is making his way to Jerusalem. Look what 31 says. Now we're all the way back to verse 31. Hope that was helpful to get us set to what's going on. At that very hour, some Pharisees, he came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus is making this journey. We might ask, will he make it? Will he get there? Will he get to Jerusalem? Well, here come some Pharisees trying to interrupt the prophet's journey. And one thing we should ask here is, are the Pharisees being nice to Jesus? Like they got tipped off that, okay, Herod's after Jesus. We better go tell him so he's safe. We, we should give him shelter and hide him in a, a, let's make a false wall in our house and we'll hide him back there so Herod can't get him. Is that what's going on or is this more antagonistic? Well, let's think about this. Pharisees, who are the Pharisees? Pharisees are people who came up, they're teachers who came up during the intertestamental period. Old Testament closes, before the New Testament opens, there's this group called Pharisees. I'll try not to give you too much detail, but the Pharisees, they were among the common people, like upper or lower or middle class, and they would learn the law, and then they would teach the law. But they really taught the law as if we can fully obey it, as if the Israelite people can get it and do it. And then they would put these traditions around the law so that, okay, follow these traditions and then you'll never break this law. Does that make sense? Like steps away from the law. And then they also were convinced that outward appearance, outward appearance would signify a, a righteous heart. So they were really concerned about what they wore and how they looked. Don't let the vestments fool you. Like I'm not trying to show you like I'm holier than I am. But the Pharisees, that's what they were doing with their clothing. And they thought outward appearance counted for a lot. And listen, they thought the hope of Israel would come and break forth into the world when the people of God were really living out the law. That's the Pharisees. And in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees are depicted as antagonistic towards Jesus. I don't have time to go through all the texts where the Pharisees pop up. Luke 5 is a good place to look for the way they treat Jesus. They doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. They are really offended when he tries to forgive sins or when he forgives sins. They refuse repentance. Jesus tells Pharisees, you must repent. Stop pretending with your, your, your traditions that you're all good. You're sinful to the heart. You must repent. They don't like that message. They refuse repentance. And now they say, Jesus, Herod, is after you. 
He wants to kill you. Herod's a puppet ruler for Rome. Over Jesus's life, he pops up. He had two brothers who also ruled in the region. His dad, Herod the Great, was the one who killed a bunch of babies when Jesus was born. This new Herod takes over and he kills someone else. Who does Herod kill? John the Baptist, the prophet. That's already happened. And the Pharisees come to Jesus, who is what? A prophet. And they say, he's up to it again. He's on the prowl. He wants to take down another prophet. Is this a nice thing that they're doing? Is this kind of them? I think not. Here's what's going on. Listen, this is important. The Pharisees are seeking to deter Jesus from continuing his mission and his ministry. They're trying to frighten him off the course. They are trying to turn his face away from Jerusalem. Listen, if we can scare this guy, if we can get him to leave the region, to just get out of here, then we don't have to hear about repentance anymore. We don't have to hear about the kingdom of God that requires us to get on our knees before God and say we're sorry for how sinful we are. Let's get rid of him. Herod wants to kill him. That should do it. We can scare him away. That's what's going on. Scare him away. They're trying to scare Jesus away. Don't go to Jerusalem because you'll die there. That's what they're saying. How does the true prophet, the last prophet sent from God respond? How did Jesus respond when the devil tried to get him to go off course? He said no. Look at verse 32. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. The prophet gives a command. You go and tell that fox. It's a way of saying Herod is treacherous and Trixie, he has, he's sly. And so essentially what Jesus says to him, go tell Herod that he might have some tricks up his sleeve in order to accomplish his treacherous deeds, but behold what I'm doing and what I'm going to be doing until the very end. I am going to be about the ministry that God sent me to do today and tomorrow. And however long it takes to get to the end, I am going to be faithful. Herod doesn't scare me. Death doesn't scare me. I'm on my way doing what God has sent me to do until the end, until it comes to a close. I will be faithful. That's what Jesus says. And the verb, this is a little geeky, but if you look at verse 32, it says, the third day I finish my course. And the verb that's translated, I finish my course, is passive. It's a passive verb. And usually we translate passive verbs as if the action is being done to the subject. Like I said, this is a little geeky. But if I, I hit the baseball, that's an active verb. I hit the ball. Passively, the ball hit me. I didn't do it. The, the inanimate object hit me. Do you see? This verb is passive. And so really what Jesus is saying, I am going to be faithful today. And tomorrow, I'm going to be faithful. And I'm going to continue to be faithful until I am brought to the end. Why does, why does this matter? Because what Jesus says is, God has a course for me. 
God is working through me. And the Father has a plan. And as long as the Father is laying out that plan, I'm going until I'm taken up, until it's over. The third day, what does that make you think of? And then verse 33. Jesus says, nevertheless, regardless of your death threats, I must go on my way today and tomorrow. He just said that again. He says it. And the day following, here's why. For it cannot be that what? What? A prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Again, he claims this title, prophet. He says that to the Pharisees. How do you think they feel about that? Even with death on the horizon, even with the prophet killer on the prowl, Jesus says, I must go. It is impossible for me to go another way. I have to go this way. Why does Jesus have to go this way? Why does Jesus have to go to Jerusalem? That's where prophets die. It's kind of a twist in the story. And do you see what's going on here? The Pharisees come to Jesus. They have this great plan. We can get rid of this repentance preacher if we can scare him because he's going to die. Jesus says, why would that scare me? I'm going to die. Do you understand the irony there? Jerusalem is where the prophet dies. Sadly, the city of God, Jerusalem, the center of worship for the people of God, the place of the temple where the presence of God would dwell with his people, this city had developed quite a reputation for killing its prophets and for rebelling against God. Second Chronicles 24, Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah 38, 1 Kings 18, especially 1 Kings 19, you've heard of Jezebel, right? Nehemiah 9.26. These are all examples of times when the rulers of Jerusalem either killed God's prophets, God sent them there and they killed them or they tried to kill them. In fact, in first century historian, Jewish historians, they all talk about how Jerusalem has this reputation for being prophet killers. Jesus has claimed this title for himself, sent and anointed by God. And so the city of Jerusalem makes a great place to die. But even more, Jesus has also claimed in Luke 4 and throughout his ministry to be the fulfillment of all prophetic hopes. Let me summarize the prophetic message of the Old Testament for you. God is bringing his kingdom to earth through a judgment against sin and redemption from sin. That's summary of the whole prophetic message. God's kingdom is coming to earth. And it's going to come with judgment against sin and a gracious redemption from sin. That's the message. And Jesus says, that's the message I'm proclaiming, but I'm also fulfilling it. Somehow Jesus is judgment fulfilled, redemption fulfilled, kingdom of God bursting into the world. Perhaps, hey, perhaps it has something to do with the prophet's death in Jerusalem. Luke 34, verse 34, 1334. Jesus laments for Jerusalem. Jeremiah, he's known as the 
the servant of lament. He, he cries for Jerusalem over and over. And Jesus, like Jeremiah, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, regardless of the threats. But here he says, he had this desire. The word I would have, it's the Greek word for desire. I desired, I wanted, I, I, I want to gather you together near me. That's what I want to do. The same word is used for what the Israelites do. At the end of the verse, you were not willing. That's the same word that Jesus used about himself. Now it's negated. I desired you, Israel, Jerusalem. I wanted you to be under my care. You did not desire me. You did not desire to turn from sin and trust in me. There, even now, the Pharisees are trying to push Jesus away. And then in verse 35, hang in here. Verse 35. Here's what he says to the Pharisees and to Jerusalem and to the Israelites, the house of God. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are some layers here to what Jesus says. Okay, some layers. First, Jesus tells the Pharisees who are seeking to lead him away from God, to push him away from God's plan. He says, you and your house and your city and your people, you've been forsaken by God. You wanted to cling to your own self-righteousness. You wanted to push God away. And so what has God done? He has forsaken you. He's pushed away from you. That's what sin does. All the time, sin leads us away from God. It separates us from God. It takes us away from the life of God. Whenever we choose to rebel against him, we are separated from him. And that's what happens to the house of Israel. Can you imagine the Pharisees? I mean, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. You've been forsaken. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Psalm, Psalm 118, it's beautiful. It's about the salvation that God works for the righteous. Okay, Psalm 118. The salvation that God works for the righteous. It's the very last Hillel psalm. A Hillel psalm, Psalm 113 to 118, were liturgical psalms meant for worship. And guess when the Israelites would sing these psalms? Whenever they were making a journey, where? To Jerusalem. And here's Jesus. I would say the Israelite making the last journey to Jerusalem. And he quotes this psalm. It was so cool. This psalm was especially significant if you were making a journey 
to the festival of Passover. The, the Israelites would sing this as they're going to Jerusalem to make the Passover sacrifice. And even at the meal, the Passover meal, they would sing this psalm. The Passover meal is a, a reminder of God's salvation that he gave Israel from the hands of the Egyptians when the blood of the lamb covered their doorposts, covered their, their house, and they were spared from death. When does Jesus end up showing him up in Jerusalem? During the feast of the Passover. When Jesus quotes the psalm here to the Pharisees, he knows they have the entire psalm memorized. Every Israelite would have the psalm memorized. He knows they know the whole thing. And so he's not just quoting, he quotes one verse, but he draws their attention to the whole psalm. Listen, New Testament students, if an author quotes the Old Testament, he knows what the rest of the Old Testament was saying in that area. So if you really want to know what's going on, you got to go back to the passage because they might just quote a couple words to draw our attention to the whole thing. So here we go, Psalm 118. You just hold your Bible like this and you open and you're at the Psalms. Now find Psalm 118. You can all do it. Let's go to Psalm 118. I want to show you a couple important things. I hope this is not too much or look at verse six. Here's Jesus knows this whole thing. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Why would that be applicable right now? Then verse eight, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in man. The Pharisees have tried to turn Jesus from his path, but Jesus, claiming Psalm 118 as his own, he knows that the Lord is his helper and that the Lord, even on the third day, will have triumph over those who hate him. Psalm 118, verse 7. Further down in the psalm, the psalmist talks about the great salvation of God, how God works a salvation for the righteous. The Lord exalts the righteous, takes up the righteous. Look at verse 17. I shall not die. They're trying to scare him away with death. And Jesus, he's quoting the psalm that says, I shall not die. I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Does he fear Herod's threat? Absolutely not. Jesus trusts in the work of God to save the righteous. Look at verse 18. The Lord has disciplined me severely. That comes out of nowhere. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So God is working this mighty salvation in his righteous people. He's exalting and protecting the righteous, and he's disciplining severely as well. Then in verses 19 to 21, the psalmist goes on to talk about this salvation. But look at verse 22. You know this song, you know this verse. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The house, it's become the new house of God. Okay, the righteous are exalted, but the righteous, it seems, will also be severely disciplined, but not given over to death. In this discipline, God is working a salvation. Finally, the righteous are like a stone who are rejected, but become the foundation of God's house. Look at verses 23 and 24. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous. Verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
And at the conclusion of the psalm, the body of the psalm, verse 27, it says, okay, get the sacrifice ready. That's Psalm 118. And there's a promise of salvation for the righteous. Who are the righteous? Who, do what is, who is doing what is right before God? Not only outwardly, but inwardly. Every part of their being doing what pleases the Father are the Pharisees. No, they refuse repentance. They refuse the Son of God. They're corrupt in their hearts. What about the city of Jerusalem? No, they stone and kill the prophets. What about Israel? The house of God. No, they have worshiped false gods. What about Adam? No, he turned. What about me? Well, there is one who's righteous. There's one who does the work of God. You might say today and tomorrow until the end, proving that in God's story, he has this great place with his healing and his miracles and his works of righteousness. A righteous person who will do the work of God until the end. And this one person, this, this, what the psalm is about is Jesus, who's speaking to the Pharisees. He's telling them, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is, you won't understand what I'm about. You won't understand what I am doing. You won't get it unless you realize I'm the blessed one sent by God to work the salvation that you've been singing about for hundreds of years. They won't do it. I mean, they'll pay lip service to him as he rides a donkey into Jerusalem, but they won't really believe he's the blessed one. And how will Jesus work the salvation, this promise fulfilled? He will be severely disciplined. He'll be rejected by the unrighteous. He will finish his journey to Jerusalem, be tried by the Jews and the Romans, be found innocent of any sin, but still he will become the Passover sacrifice to bear the discipline for all the unrighteous. The prophetic message of the prophets in the Old Testament and the prophetic message of Jesus in the New Testament is that the kingdom is coming out through the judgment of sins. And Jesus on the cross, he takes judgment for our sins. And he tells the Pharisees, you better recognize that Herod cannot stop this work. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. He's the true Israelite, the righteous one of Psalm 118. He will bear God's wrath. He will be separated even by death. But Jesus is also the fulfillment of the promise of redemption. Because Jerusalem is not just death. Jerusalem's an empty tomb. Jerusalem's not just sin paid for, it's sin forgiven. And Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem because I have to finish this work of salvation. He's headed to Jerusalem, listen, at all costs. No one can stop him. No threat is too great. And what does this passage beckon us to do as we see our Savior on this journey who says, nothing will turn me away from the Father's will. Nothing will keep me from saving you, from dying for your sins. Nothing. What do we do with this message? We must set our face to Jerusalem. That is, 
to the cross where the sacrifice for our sins was lifted up. And as Jesus went to Jerusalem at all costs, we must run to Jesus no matter the cost. Let nothing deter us, stop us, turn us away from daily, moment by moment, returning to the cross of Christ where he spreads out his arms. Maybe you say he spreads them out, giving shelter like a hen to her, like chicken to her daughter, her children, giving shelter in the cross. And so I ask you, what keeps you from running to the cross? What deters you from following towards Jesus? What's the Pharisee in your ear saying, nah, don't go there? Is it what others might think of you? Friends you might lose? Is it the love you have for the pleasures of the earth, the lust of the eyes? Is it indifference or laziness? Is it the doubt of God's true victory on the cross? Is it your messy past where you think, no, nah, I don't know if Jesus can really handle that? Let us, brothers and sisters, who are empowered by the living God in the presence of Jesus, put our faith in Jesus' promise to give us life. And then every moment, let's be known, even in this city, as those people who just keep running to the cross. In our homes, we, we run to the cross. To our spouse, we tell them, no, I know you feel overwhelmed. You need to run to the cross. To our children, when they fight and they need reconciliation, we take them into our arms and we, we, we deliver them to the cross. We, we say, run to the cross. To our neighbors who are lost and say, no, 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 you gotta run to Jesus. You need the blood of the lamb. Let's run to Jesus this Lenten season as we feel the weight of our sin and see the truth that Jesus has come in the name of the Lord to accomplish all our salvation at any cost.